try that again. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me back. My name's Kramer Farney. I'm from New Covenant Bible Church down in St. Charles. It's our church picnic today as well, but after hearing about all the desserts that will be here, I'm considering staying. Uh, Would you please join me as we pray? Father God, we come to your word expectant that you will do marvelous things this morning. We know that in your word is such power to change lives. And Lord, we ask that that would be alive today. Send your spirit, Lord, be with us. Help us to see marvelous things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What must it be like to be desperate for deliverance? Like, like really desperate. To be devoid of all options. To be absent from all hope, separated from all help. Some of you here this morning probably know this feeling. Or maybe someone you've known has known this feeling. But even still, it can be hard to imagine everything in your life going wrong all at once. That is, though, exactly what happened to a man named Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini grew up in Los Angeles, and he was a tremendously headstrong young man. He found himself in all sorts of quarrels growing up until he finally found an outlet for his enormous energy, which was running. And it turns out he was a pretty good runner. It, not really even pretty good, like he was incredible. By his junior year in California, he ran a four-minute, 21-second mile, making him a California state champion and sending him uh, on scholarship to the University of Southern California. But even that wasn't really the pinnacle of his achievement, because in 1936, he became the youngest qualifier ever in America for the 5,000 meters, and he was headed to Berlin to run in the 1936 Olympics. 1936 Olympics was a a, a tense one for obvious reasons there in the uh, early stages of World War II. But Louis ended up going over there and finishing eighth. He was the top finishing American in the 5,000 meter in the Berlin race. But what was really incredible about that race is he ran the fastest last lap in recorded history. Or previously, it had been like 63 seconds, and he ran it in like 56 seconds. It was incredible. So much so, it was so evident to everyone in the crowd that Hitler himself, Adolf Hitler in the stands, said, I want to meet that young man. And so Louis Zamperini was escorted to Hitler's private box after the race. He shook his hand, and Adolf Hitler said, Ah, the boy with the fast finish. And Louis was dismissed. He was dismissed. He had just run the Olympics. He goes back home. And he goes back home uh, to finish school before enlisting in the military and joining the fighting of World War II, where he was stationed in the Pacific. And it's really here where Louis' enduring story begins. 
because out on a mission one day, there was an airplane that they were asked to fly that had a history of malfunction, and yet they went out in it anyway. The two right engines failed, and they hurled toward the Pacific. And of the 11 crewmen on board, only three survived that crash. And then they would go on to spend 47 days at sea. Now these days were brutal, unending days. The nights, bitter cold, and during the days, they baked under an unrelenting sun. They had no food, no water, and no hope. In an interview later, Louis would say, you'll hear that there's no atheists in foxholes. I can tell you that's 10 times more true on a raft afloat in the ocean. Day by day, minute by minute, these three men pled with a God whom none of them knew to save them. They made every plea, every promise, if only they would be saved from their dire situation. Now, two of the three of them did survive those 47 days before finally being washed ashore. But they didn't wash ashore on U.S. soil. In fact, they washed ashore in the enemy, behind enemy lines on a Japan island. And immediately after coming ashore on that Japanese island, they were incarcerated in a brutal prisoner of war camp. These camps were so barbarian, in fact, that a third of those captured and incarcerated would pass away. And in this utter darkness, when Louis was void of all hope, his true torment was only about to begin. Because Louis was famous. People knew of him. The Japanese prisoner of war camp guards included. And there was one guard, Mutishoro Watanabe, also known as the bird, who had a specific vendetta against Louis. And he would do such unspeakable things and subject Louis to such brutal beatings and torture that even 60 years later in an interview, Louis would struggle to talk about it. Now that would go on for over a year until finally the war ended and those prisoners were freed back to America. Louis found himself in one of the deepest and darkest trials, and in those moments, he was desperate for deliverance. So, too, are the characters that we're going to see in today's text. We're coming to the end of 1 Samuel today, and we're going to see in 1 Samuel 29, 30, and 31, we're going to see their pursuit of deliverance. And to do that, we're actually going to work these chapters backwards. So that means we're going to start with 31, we're going to go to chapter 30, we're going to end with chapter 29. And here's the three points, I believe these are in your notes, so you can jot these down or highlight them, however you want to do it. Here's the three points for today. In chapter 31, we'll see Saul pursue deliverance and find destruction. In chapter 30, we'll see David pursue the deliverer and find deliverance. And finally, we'll see in chapter 29 that God pursues David. And here's the one key sentence. If you forget everything else, please remember this. 
that in our dire moments we should not pursue deliverance, but the deliverer. In our dire moments, we should not pursue deliverance, but we should pursue the deliverer. And with that, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Here, we're going to find King Saul in battle, and it quickly turns deadly. I'll read the first six verses. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died with him. So here it is at the end of 1 Samuel, we find the end of King Saul's life. Now, we've known about this inevitable end for many chapters. So it comes as no surprise that for a king who had such potential and yet lacked that one critical element, that he would fail to listen and obey the one true king. We actually examined this together the last time that I was here in 1 Samuel 13 through 15. And it was with this separation Uh, that Samuel had told Saul, you know, brought the word of God to Saul and said, uh, I will never see you again. And the word of God has departed from you. And yet that was in chapter 15. And now here we are in chapter 31. Saul's been king for a lot of years in this division. And in those years, he's lived in utter torment. One of those key ways we see his troubled spirit manifest itself is his relentless pursuit of David, who he knows will be the king. He pursues him and tries to take his life. But also through those 16 chapters, we see him ask this question basically over and over, will I be delivered over the Philistines? Will I have success over my enemies? And finally, in chapter 28, he's been asking this question and asking this question. Finally, in chapter 28, he can't take it any longer. And you would have maybe heard this last week. He pursues a medium to summon Samuel from the dead to ask him again. He says this, I'm in great distress. This is Saul. For the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. What we see here is a man desperate for deliverance. He's so desperate, in fact, that he chooses one of the wickedest and darkest paths to try to find his answer, and it only sends him further into the pit of despair. He did, though, find the answer to his question in in 1 Samuel 28. 
For Samuel, the prophet replies bluntly in chapter 28 that not only will God not be delivering Saul, but in fact, the next battle that Saul enters, he and his sons will perish. Saul finally got the answer to his question that he was dying to know, and he indeed died to know it. Saul's fatal flaw, the final sword in his side, was that in his desperation, he only sought deliverance. And in so doing, he found destruction. Saul spent the rest of his life after that fatal sin in chapter 15, chasing supplements for symptoms rather than a cure for his true disease. He'd lost all vision of who God was and only saw him as what God could do for him or give him. Now, please don't hear me saying that it's wrong to ask God for deliverance. It's not. But what we do need to understand here from Saul's example is as one who is separated from God, he only viewed God as this all-powerful ATM rather than a gracious father. So Saul pursued deliverance and found destruction. He failed at many points. And as we close 1 Samuel today, we see the close of King Saul's life. There was another, though, and as we flip back one chapter, so we're going in reverse, we're in chapter 30 now, I want to show you what David does. Now, David, in chapter 30, has just been honorably discharged from an enemy army. That's a wild phrase. We're going to talk about that in just a second. So he's just been honorably discharged, and now he and his men make their way back to their city, which this is the city of Ziklag. And what they find there is actually a painful reminder of what Saul failed to do all those chapters ago. Saul was tasked to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and he didn't. And guess who destroys the city when David leaves? It was the Amalekites. Let's look at that in chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried off, carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul. Each, for, for each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. While David and his men were away, the Amalekites had come into the city and burned it with fire, and they took all of the women and children captive. 
what we see then is a scene unfolding of true and utter heartbreak. When David and all of his mightiest warrior men are reduced to a pile of weeping, desperate mourners. They wept and wept and wept until even the power to weep evaded them. So David's city is burned, his wife and children taken captive, and he's so exhausted from mourning that you'd think things couldn't get any worse until they do. For David has so many enemies at this point that even his friends have turned against him. In the middle of all of this, those same men who have been with him the past 16 months, his friends, his compatriots, his companions are threatening to stone him. Those men are heartbroken and they're lashing out in anger against the only person who they can think to blame. They blame their leader, David. Now, if you've ever walked alongside someone in the midst of a great trial, you may have seen something like this. Or maybe you've even noticed it in yourself during your own difficult period. For those times when the Lord brings people low, there is a very human and unhealthy habit of hurting people while you're hurting. Sometimes this is an un, it is unintended, simply a result of the situation, of the tension against a certain person or family. But there are certainly other times, like we see here, where it's personal, vindictive, and wicked. So add to David's anguish now the loss of his friends and fearing for his own life, and you're left with one of the most desperate people recorded in the Bible. This immense pressure and unbelievable suffering is what leads us to the central thought, the primary theme that I think we need to understand from our text this morning. What we need to understand is, is what the question is, what does a desperate David do? Let me show you in the verses 6 through 8, chapter 30, verses 6 through 8. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this? Shall I overtake them? The Lord answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Did you see it? It's natural to think that David, in his lowest point, would first seek deliverance, that his primary aim would be to answer the nagging questions of Will I find my wife and children? Are they safe? Will I be delivered from these friends who are closing in around me? But that is not what David does. Instead, in verse 6, we see him strengthen himself in his 
Lord. Then, in verse 7, he talks to the priest and pursues the answer to his question of, will I be delivered? This is what we can't miss, folks. David was strengthened in the Lord before he understood that he would ever be delivered. More succinctly said, David first pursued the deliverer, and then he pursued deliverance. With his world spinning out of control, enemies closing in on every side, David stopped, he prayed, and he sought, and the Lord gave him strength. David saw God as his refuge and strength, as his counselor and friend, not simply as an emergency hotline to be dialed in extenuating circumstances. And remember that Saul was in the same basic state as David. How would you describe both of their plights or how they felt at this time? I'd say they were both alone and afraid, desperate and fearful. And Saul, in chapter 31, chooses the somewhat logical path to pursue the answer to his question, will I be delivered? David, though, chose the faithful path and shows us that to find deliverance, we must seek the deliverer. David's strength isn't predicated on deliverance because it comes from the deliverer. It comes from his Lord, And this is the same for us today. Our faith, which is our strength, is not dependent on our circumstantial deliverance because it's fixed already on what Christ has done. We receive strength from the Lord through faith, regardless of our circumstances. And to flip this is to invert the idea of faith entirely. Because our faith is not in deliverance. It's in the deliverer. That's what David did. He sought the deliverer. He found deliverance. And that probably leads you to a pretty logical question. How can I do this? How can I be strengthened in the Lord? And I have good news because David gave us 73 behind-the-scenes examples of how he was strengthened in all of the psalms that he wrote. He gives us a lot of those. His psalms are so guttural and honest and human. And when we read them, we too can be strengthened in the Lord as we pattern our lives after his. Let's look at just one example of that together this morning. It's in Psalm 130. Psalm 130, I want to read the whole chapter, which is eight verses. Hear what... A desperate David says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 130 shows us what David does to draw strength from the Lord, namely that he remembers what God has done and who God is. As he recalls all that God has done, should he mark iniquities? No, I remember that about God, and what's that provide in David? A freeness of soul. He's encouraged, he's strengthened, because he remembers more of who God is, that he would never leave him or forsake him. And kids, this isn't just an activity for adults. Like You can do this too. One of David's most famous psalms is Psalm 23. And even understood in a paraphrased way, this will give you strength as you go back to school or do whatever. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. Even though I walk through a dark valley, I will fear no evil, for he is with me. He prepares a table before me, and I will be with my loving shepherd forever. This is how you find strength in the Lord. And while we think about that shepherd, that gentle, powerful ally, I want to reflect on one more thing in chapter 30 before we leave it this morning. Because I want to take a couple minutes to see how David is not only teaching us how to confront difficult situations, but he's also foreshadowing Jesus. So, go with me here. David foreshadows Jesus. Here's the first way I see this in chapter 30. First, it's in the similarities of the people who were drawn to them. In chapter 30, verse 6, it talks about the people being bitter in soul. Well, that's a repeated phrase one other time in 1 Samuel, back in chapter 22. And this is when uh, David escapes to the caves. And it says that all who were bitter in soul went with him. So those who were distressed and downtrodden, they found their home with David. They found their king with David. Now, does this remind you of anyone? Because in Matthew, we see the same thing of Christ. Matthew 4 says that he went throughout the kingdom healing every disease and affliction, and his fame spread among Syria, and they brought who? The sick, the afflicted with various diseases, those with pains, those oppressed, those having seizures, those paralytics, and he healed them. This is who was drawn to Jesus. Jesus came for the sick, not the well. And those who were dejected were drawn to him. In both of these situations, we see how Jesus and David also deal with the betrayal of their closest friends. For Jesus, that included his closest friends most dear earthly friends, one of them, Judas, who outright offered him up for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And others like Peter, 
who denied ever knowing him and he left Christ's side in his desperate time of need. And yet, in those times, what do David and Christ do? We saw already what David does. But here's what Christ does. You'll remember the story. It's late in the night in the garden. And Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And he leaves his disciples there. He says, pray with me for a while. And he goes up to be alone with his father. And in Luke 22, he prays. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And what happens? An angel appeared in heaven to strengthen him. Christ, too, does not ultimately seek deliverance from his circumstance. He's desperate. He's dejected. He's alone. But in his darkest hour, he turns heavenward and he seeks the deliverer. He seeks the Father. And God, the same God who upheld King David in 1 Samuel, is the same God again for our forever king in the garden. Christ is our ultimate victor, our ultimate exemplar. His obedience to the cross both teaches us how to navigate these valleys that we find ourselves in, but it also, and more importantly, secures our final deliverance. And with that in mind, we'll look at our last chapter, chapter 29, where we'll see God pursuing David. So look with me here at chapter 29. Now let me summarize a bit of what's happening. There's a lot of interesting context uh, to what's going on in chapter 29. Because if you go back just a couple more chapters, in chapter 27, David has just chosen not to take King Saul's life again. He basically had him on a silver platter. He could have taken his life and ended the suffering that was happening. He chose not to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And he has some sort of like self-revelation in the beginning of chapter 27. He says this, this is David speaking. Now I shall surely perish at the hand of Saul. So there is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of looking for me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So after saying this, we see it recorded in chapter 27 that David flees into enemy territory. But in enemy territory, he finds favor with an enemy king, King Achish, who actually gives him a city to live in. So King Achish gives David and his men Ziklag the city, and they live there safely. Now, all while David's living in this town of Ziklag, he's carrying out raids, meaning he's making war on uh, different pagan nations, different Philistine nations. But then he'll return, and when he comes to King Achish, he'll say, oh, no, I was actually raiding Israelite nations. So he's lying to King Achish to continue to find favor with him. And all of this leads King Achish to believe that David is on his side. So much so, listen to this, that King Achish brings David and his men along with him when they're planning to go attack the Israelites. This is utter 
craziness. And with that as context, let's look at 1 Samuel 29, verses 1 through 5. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by the hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he's deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to his place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down to battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing and one another dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So here we find David in the absolute stickiest of wickets. Up to this point, David has been lying to King Achish, and finally those lies have caught up with him. Now, we can't be sure if the move to Ziklag uh, was, you know, a sinful one, but what we do know there in chapter 27, there's no mention of David seeking the Lord or, you know, finding him in that circumstance, only that he basically self-reflected and came up with this idea to flee. And now he finds himself stuck. So picture this. He's surrounded on every side by the Philistine army, and 99.9% of them hate David and his men. That 99.9% go to the 0.1%, which is King Achish, And they make some very valid points. They first say, "Uh, King Achish, you do know that David's an Israelite, right? You do know that we're going to fight the Israelites. If he fights them, how would he be reconciled to his Lord? Won't he turn on us in battle? Aren't there actual songs written about him literally killing us by the ten thousands? The Philistine commanders are no fools. And so just think, like what are David's options here? Option one, run away. Well, that's troublesome because there's a literal army encamped around him. Let's say he does just start to run away. Those Philistines encamped around him are going to know something's wrong at once. They will easily overtake David and his men, and it's... Lights out. Option two, he can't do that. So let's say he goes into battle and begins to fight and take the lives of the very people who he's been anointed to protect. That's not going to work. David is stuck. There are no good options, nothing he can do, and nowhere to turn. But God knows it. 
even though David, at this point, has made at best reckless and at worst sinful decisions that have led him to this point, God has not abandoned him. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Chapter 29, verses 6 and 7. Then Achish called to David and said, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. Laugh out loud. And to me it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the Lord of the lords of the Philistines. God made a way out. God, through King Achish, provides a way out for David, says that you can go peaceably back to Ziklag. Notice, though, what's absent. We don't see David pursuing the deliverer here, as we did in chapter 30. We don't see him praying to be strengthened or to know the Lord more. We don't see him making a sacrifice or talking to the priest. We don't see any admirable or exemplary behavior of any kind on David's part. What we do see is God. You see, even though David wasn't pursuing God in the same way in chapter 29 that he did in chapter 30, God was pursuing David. Brothers and sisters, this is the most precious thing that we can understand today. That as believers in Jesus, even when we aren't pursuing the Lord, he is always pursuing us. This is the very reason that I think these chapters make more sense back to front than they do front to back. Because in the New Testament, Jesus came and flipped everything on its head. David had a terrible mess for himself back in 1 Samuel, but God wasn't deterred or dismissive. He indeed was the deliverer. And for you here today, if you are believing in Jesus, confessing him as Lord and Savior, then your world has been turned upside down too. Because even, and sometimes especially in the moments when you haven't been pursuing the Lord, and he delivers you anyways, you find yourself back on your knees in true worship and thankfulness to the Lord. That's because Jesus came and pursued the deliverer for your deliverance. Jesus came and pursued the deliverer for your deliverance. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserved. And in that moment, he not only took away our sin, but he granted to us his righteousness. God the Father sending Jesus is the ultimate example of God delivering his people. That started a long time ago, even with David, and we can see it now in our daily lives. God pursued David, and he delivered him. Now today we've seen that deliverance, this idea of deliverance, can be a bit counterintuitive which is certainly true as we think back 
1945 and Louis Zamperini's story. Because Louis Zamperini is now returning home to the United States. The war is over. And he'll soon marry his lifelong bride. So he's a free man in a free country. But he was still very much a captive. Every night was the same. Louis was plagued by nightmares of that brutal guard, the bird. And Louis would only barely sleep, terrified to close his eyes. And when he did, he was transported back to that awful camp. And in these dreams, he would attack his brutal guard only to wake and realize that he was actually attacking his own wife. He was tortured in a whole new way, incarcerated now by his own mind and memory. He had no way out, only a way to try to deal with his PTSD and insomnia. And so he turned to alcohol. And he drank with such fervor that his wife could no longer stand it and told Louis that she was filing for divorce. But God had a plan. You see, there was a young upstart evangelist who you may have heard of by the name of Billy Graham. And he was touring in Los Angeles at that time. Louis's wife attended a rally. And it was there that she came to know the Lord. And even, even this, at first, Louis was put off by, and he did everything in his power to ignore or avoid the conversation or really any interaction that involved Jesus until one evening he, too, decided to attend the rally. And in an interview many years later, Louis would say this, when I went, all Billy Graham did was talk about one person for 30 minutes the person of Jesus Christ. Louis said, when I was sitting there, I started to have flashbacks of how when I was on that raft or in that cell, all those thousands of prayers that I prayed that if you spare my life, I will seek you. I kept thinking that when I came back from the war, I never kept a single prayer. But then he went forward and he prayed a new prayer. And this one had nothing to do with his deliverance. And it had everything to do with the deliverer. He says then, when I stood up after asking Jesus to save me, I knew I was done getting drunk. I knew I had forgiven the bird and every guard that had tortured me. And as proof, it's been 49 years, at least at the time of this interview, and I haven't had a nightmare since. Now here's what you can't miss. There's no numbering the prayers that I'm sure Louis prayed in, in his desperation in the middle of every trial that he endured. But those were all prayers for deliverance. Following, though, the example of David and then the example we see in Jesus himself, it was only when Louis prayed and sought the deliverer that he found true deliverance. David he made this his practice, and at least most of the time, as we see in chapter 30. And we should seek to emulate it. And I mentioned earlier that David gives us 73 examples, 73 behind-the-scenes views of how he sought the Lord, how he sought the deliverer. 
And so today I'd like to close with one of those. Psalm 18. I'd ask you to turn there. Psalm 18. And we will close with this, but as a reminder, today we've seen in 1 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, we saw King Saul pursue deliverance and find destruction. We saw in chapter 30 that David pursued the deliverer and found deliverance. And finally, we saw in chapter 29 that God pursued David. And as we close, I want you to be encouraged, brothers and sisters, especially as we think about that last point of God pursuing David. We read this earlier. I'm going to read again verses 16 through 19 of Psalm 18. He, God, sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me and from them who were too mighty for me. They confronted me in my day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Brothers and sisters, God delights to deliver you. That is why he sent his son. Even before that, all those years ago, that's what David understood. That's what, that's what he drew strength from. That's what I'm asking us to remember today. But if you're here today and you don't yet know this delight of deliverance, please come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. We'd love to show you Jesus and his open arms towards you. As we look today at 1 Samuel, it's a good thing as believers to understand that we should be pursuing the deliverer versus pursuing deliverance. It's a better thing to know that in the end, it's all possible. It's all made possible because the deliverer pursued us first. But the best thing The best thing, our God delights to deliver us. He has and will deliver all who are his forever because he delights in you. Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe of what you have done. We are in awe of you sending your son to die on our behalf, to take our place, to grant us his righteousness. And you did that all because you delighted in us, because you wanted to dwell again with your people. And so you sent your son. You paid the ultimate price. And now we can look to our delivered or our deliverer because we are delivered. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for the work he has done on the cross on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.